to them was frankly untrue. You should know that. Uh, it, is a, it's, it is absolutely preposterous uh, that uh, such a thing happened at Kmart. Um, it happened at Disneyland. I was there. It did not happen. <laughs> it did not happen at Kmart. And uh, the last thing I wanted to mention to you on a serious note before I read the Bible is this. That the last time I was here, I had a heavy burden on my heart about one of my friends and his wife, uh, whose name I mentioned to you and asked if some of you would covenant uh, with me and some others in prayer. And uh, I, I am so thrilled to tell you that uh, Russell and Moira are together along with their children. Uh, they are uh, happily and properly and uh, meaningfully united in their marriage. They are faithfully involved in their local church. And uh, God truly and in an amazing way at the 11th hour apparently answered the prayers of many people. And some of you were part of that praying. And uh, I want you to know. And uh, one day perhaps uh, he'll even come with me here. And um, by that time you'll be teaching on the faculty. But at least a few of you will remember what had happened. So thank you for praying. And now I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4 with me. I want to turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture this morning. Make no apology for doing that. Peter says that he intends always to remind his readers of these things so that after his departure they'll be able to bring them to mind. And the task of teaching is so often the task of reminding of the basic things. I'd like to read from the 27th verse. John chapter 4, verse 27. I'm reading from the uh, New International Version. You may just want to listen if you are following in a different translation. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Amen. Let us take a moment in prayer. Now, Lord, I do pray that you will take my words and speak through them.
Take our minds and help us to think properly. Take our hearts and stir them up with fresh devotion to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In approaching this passage of Scripture this morning, I want to do so under three simple headings, none of which will appear on the screen behind me. Uh, And they are these, so that you might know where I'm going. I want to look with you, first of all, at the woman's invitation, and then at the master's exhortation, and then at the people's affirmation. The woman's invitation, the master's exhortation, and the people's affirmation. Very straightforward. The woman's invitation can be found right there in the heart of the passage, which we read together, where she announces to the town from which she's come, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. You'll notice that it was within the framework of her own locality. It was addressed to her own people. It was absolutely clear, and it was particularly concise. Nobody could be in any doubt as to what it was she was saying. She was speaking straightforwardly. She was addressing the folks who would have known her best. And she simply encourages them to come and see a man. Now, the cynical people from around about her neighborhood, presumably in hearing just the opening part of her phrase, must have been saying to one another, here we go again. Because after all, this lady, when it came to men, was a lady with a checkered past. And there was a sense in which the folks from the town were used to this kind of invitation from her. She may not have said it in so many words, but they had known over the years as they'd observed the lifestyle of this woman, that when you mentioned this lady's name, you didn't just mention the name of a man, you mentioned the name of men. And could it possibly be that in the early part of this afternoon, this lady, who'd had five husbands and now had a live-in lover, was really going up and down the bazaars of the town, saying to people, I want you to come and see a man. Admittedly, she added, that told me everything I ever did. But in the way of things, it is often the fact that when the word begins to spin around, people don't get the essence of it all, and they would just begin to say to one another, the lady from the well, you know, the one that goes out there in the middle of the day, she's back. And some of the cynics would have been saying, yes, she's back, and she's back a little later than she usually is in the afternoon. I wonder what she was doing. And she's back, and she doesn't have those water jars that she usually carries with her. She's back with no jars, and she's back late, and she's hit the bazaars, and she's got an announcement, and it is, I want you to come and see a man. Of course, she's proclaiming the fact that she wants to come and see a man whom she wonders could possibly be the Messiah. I want you to see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I want to pause and just say to you this morning that when it comes to thinking about our responsibility of going from the Master's College and out into the world, the beginning of it and the middle of it and the end of it is encapsulated in this invitation of the woman. 
It is to go out into our world and say, Come see a man. I want you to come and meet Jesus. I want you to come and hear from one who told me everything that I ever did. And in the style that she had just discovered from Jesus, she puts it in a kind of interactive way, not declarative, but sucking from them as it were a response. And she says, I wonder, do you think this could possibly be the Messiah? Now, doubtless in her invitation, there were plenty of people who were prepared to say, away with you, we've got no real interest in it at all. But there would have been some who may have come by her and said exactly what it is you're talking about, could you please explain? And to those individuals, she would have been able to recount the events of the afternoon. The events of the afternoon are there in the opening part of John chapter 4. If your Bible is open, you can find them there. And as you look at them, the story unfolds with great clarity. Indeed, most of us know it particularly well. And that, of course, can be a hindrance to us in coming to the Scriptures. So let me do something that is completely out of character for me, and I hope will not be unhelpful to anyone here. But let me, as it were, enter into the part of the woman for a moment, and let me describe the events that led up to her invitation, not in the third person by way of observation, but in the first person as if I were actually she, as if I had been present. And it would have gone something like this, presumably. Somebody said, what do you mean, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did? And she would have been able to say, well, you know, I went to the well today the way I always go to the well. I went to the well today alone. I always go alone. I've long since forgotten what it would be like to go when the other women go from the town. And I recognize it's the price to pay. But I make my journey in the heat of the noonday sun so as not to be confronted by their glares and to watch them talk behind their hands concerning my lifestyle. But today was a different day. Because when I got to the well, a man was there. That staggered me to begin with. A Jewish man and a man who spoke to me. Nothing particularly dramatic. He simply said initially, he said, excuse me, do you think I could have a drink of water? And I looked at him and I said, you a Jew asking me a Samaritan for a drink of water? And then he suggested to me that while I seemed to be in the position to be able to provide him with something that he wanted, that he in some strange way was actually in the position to provide me with what I needed. That somehow or another I was the one in need of a drink and he was some kind of fountain as it were. He aroused my curiosity in that. And I remarked on the fact that he was sitting by the well but he had no way of getting water out of the well. I said to him, the water is deep down there. You can't scoop it out with your hands. How could it possibly be that you could give me water to drink? I didn't understand, but he was talking about living water, as he put it. I followed it up. I said to him, hey, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than our father Jacob who made this well? It was okay for Jacob. He built it. He drank from it. Who do you think you are? You sitting by the well? There's no problem with this well. You've got to produce some other kind of water. He didn't get into it. Just passed the comment by. 
Just like the Samaritan question a moment or two before. And then he points down the well and he says to me, you know, everyone who drinks the water from this well will thirst again, but the water that I give them, they'll drink it and they'll never thirst again. So I said, I said, sign me up for that. I said to him straight up, I said, give me some of that water because I'm tired of coming out here in the middle of the day. I don't want to be coming here every day. If there's water like that, give me that water. But you know, you know when you get a sneaking suspicion that somebody is saying something beyond what they're actually saying? That's how I felt when he said that to me. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I felt somehow or another that in addressing me in that way, there was something more to what he was saying. And then right out of the blue, completely from nowhere, he says to me, go and get your husband and come back. First of all, I almost almost giggled. I was going to say, which one should I get? And then there was something about the way he looked at me. I mean, he looked at me. It wasn't a glare. It was, it was more like he looked right inside of me. It was just compassion in his eyes. And it was clear that he wanted me to go and do just as he said. And I stood and I looked at the ground for a while because I wasn't sure quite how to respond. And I want you to know it cost me something. There's a sense in which it cost me everything to say. I have no husband. And he looked at me. And he wasn't like the Pharisees. He didn't then try and wring the gory details out of me. He just looked at me and he said, I know you've had five husbands and the man you live with now is not your husband. Inside of me I said, not simply I've got a problem, but I feel dirty. Inside of me I said, I feel empty. Inside of me, I said, I don't know why it is on this particular day and this particular encounter, but I feel wretched. Somehow or another, I felt absolutely filthy standing there. And the only thing I knew to say was to myself, I need a sacrifice for my sins. And so I looked at the stranger again and I said to him, listen, you know when you sacrifice, are you supposed to sacrifice in Gerizim or are you supposed to sacrifice in Jerusalem? And then he explained to me, he says, you know, lady, there's a day coming and it's now come when those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and truth. The issue is not in the craziness of Gerizim, nor is it in the orthodoxy of Jerusalem. But the issue is that you are able now to worship in spirit and in truth. As soon as he got me onto this, I said, you know, I believe that when the Messiah comes, he'll take care of all of this. He'll explain it. That's his business. And then without so much as batting an eyelid, he looked me straight in the eye again. And he said, ego, I me. I am he. I'm the Messiah. To me, an obscure, messed up, 
sinful, unknown, unloved woman, the Messiah would come and reveal himself. And then just at that, his disciples came by. Not too soon to interrupt and not too late to miss the deal. They're a noisy bunch, full of sandwiches and stuff. And I could see when they began to talk to one another, it was time for me to leave. So I left my jar there. I figured they might need a drink of water. As it was, none of us had had any water to that point. And I left my jar, and I headed back into the city. And here I am, inviting you to come and meet the man. Now, to the degree that that is accurate or inaccurate, there must be some element of it. That the lady, in her direct encounter with Christ, was so moved, so stirred, so changed, that she returns to her normal thoroughfare of life simply to say, I want you to meet the man who has invaded and transformed and changed me. Loved ones, I want to say to you this morning, from the depths of my heart, I want to encourage you, as we've thought about prayer and about contentment, and as we're about to think about other things, and necessarily so, here is a simple reminder. As Wesley says, "'Tis all our business here below to cry, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the reason for your existence." That is why God has redeemed you, to, so that you might glorify Him. And in, in this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And the essence of the gospel is here in this woman's invitation. I want you to come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. I am stirred by her unashamed enthusiasm. I am challenged by her straightforward approach. I am frankly encouraged by the fact that she was not in a 12 or 14 week program in evangelism or something before she even began. That is not to say that we should not prepare our people for evangelism, but it is to say this, that when you encounter Christ in all his goodness, and when, if you like, in a sense, our hearts are stirred by his grace and his mercy, the course may supplement, but the course cannot supplant the vital dimension of a life in touch with Jesus Christ. Every girl in this auditorium this morning that has any kind of inkling of affection for a fellow has probably got some little memento of him, some little picture of him, some little something that she likes to leave around so that people can say, and, and, and who is this or what is this? And then she can say, oh, I'm so glad that you asked. I'm just so glad that you asked. And then in that moment you wish you'd never even mentioned it. This is all oh, for goodness sake. All right, I've got the point now. Thank you very much. I understand. You really feel something for this fellow, I can tell. See, this lady was not walking back into town with some methodical little framework established in her mind, doing something out of a sense of guilt, doing something out of a sense of supposed to. She was doing something that was virtually, if you like, uncontrollable. Come on and see the man. 
It's what we want to say to Los Angeles. It's what we want to say to America. It's what we want to say to the world. Let her invitation be our invitation. Now, from there, let us look then at the Master's exhortation. Verse 35, you know it well. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus knew that this woman was not the only one who was ready to hear the message and to respond. I don't want to play with the Scriptures or rest them to my own destruction, but we do want to understand here that there is a very life-engaging situation which is unfolded. I mean, 2,000 years of church history have put Jesus way down the chancel and somewhere behind 15 choir areas and five communion tables and seven who knows what's and eventually is away down there distance from the people. And so when people like that read these things, they read them in, in sort of uh, non-realistic terminology. But the, here's the deal. Jesus and the disciples are making a journey. Jesus is tired. Jesus says, I'm waiting at the well. The guy said, we'll get the sandwiches. Okay, I've got the drinks. you got the sandwiches. You get the food. I've got the drinks. They go to get the food. They come back. They come back. They said, hey, master, time for lunch. Time to eat something. Are you going to eat the stuff? And Jesus says, hey, listen, I've got food to eat that you don't know anything about. Now, don't let's deify the disciples. I mean, we, what we know from their stuff, I mean, one of them goes, uh, Jesus comes walking on the water, they think he's a ghost. They don't understand about the feeding of the 5,000 because their hearts were hardened. These guys were not really too tuned in at this point in the journey. So you can imagine them talking to one another. This is brilliant, they're saying to one another. We're the guys who go slaving through the heat, get the jolly sandwiches, bring them all the way back here. We said, okay, we've got the sandwiches, we've got the, the, got the water, let's get the lunch going. And Jesus hits them with his deal. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so they're looking at one another saying, hey, did somebody bring him food? And they probably said, I wonder if that lady had food with her. Maybe that's the answer. But none of it was the answer, as Jesus makes clear. My food, he says, the essence of my existence is to do his will and to finish his work. Here in the 34th verse of John 4, Jesus explains to us his mission, his devotion, and his satisfaction. What is it that gives to Jesus that deep sense of mission and devotion and satisfaction? It is simply that he might do God's will and that he might finish God's work. Now, is that not an example that we might follow in his steps? You can write that down in your journal for today, the 12th of January if it is. You can say, I understood today from John chapter 4 verse 34 that Jesus was consumed with a passion to finish his will, to do God's will and to finish his work. And to some degree, Lord Jesus, I want to say to you today that I would like that to be the hallmark of my life. It seems so far from me, so removed from me, so long out in the distance. But today, here as a student in this school, I want to do just that. I delight to do your will, O Lord, says the psalmist, and it isn't grievous to me. 
You see, it is because of this that when Jesus hangs upon the cross, one of his words from the cross is tetelestai. It is finished. What is finished? The doing of his will and the completing of his work. Now, if you allow the camera angle, as it were, to widen out as Jesus speaks and turns their gaze away from him, if you imagine the camera angle widening out, he says to them, listen, don't say four months more and then comes the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. And if you take this passage of Scripture and work out what's going on here in the time frame that goes by, and the commentators make much of this, it's certainly worth our consideration, the chances are that the lady, having gone and said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, has been now bringing the crowd out of the town. And as the crowd comes out of the town in the distance, as the sun shines down upon them with their eastern headdresses white and with the bands around them bobbing as a crowd makes its way towards them, Jesus says, I'm telling you something, lift up your eyes and look on these fields. Look at the fields walking towards you. They're white for the harvest. Here's your harvest, he said. You know, it's real possible to go through an educational experience like this and to miss our focus and the simple, vital word of God to our hearts this morning is get your eyes up. Don't be looking in yourself all the time to see if you're still alive, waking up in the morning, taking your pulse. Oh, yes, I think I'm alive. Taking your spiritual pulse. How am I doing? How am I doing? How's he doing? How's everybody doing? I'll tell you how to do well. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. Go to the mall and sit there and weep. Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Why would we allow Lennon to make that his cry? Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all belong? Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Lonely people filled with care, headed who knows where. I was in a mall in Glendale the other night. I found a girl with a West Indian hat. I presume it was from the West Indies, all multicolored, sticking on the back of her head. She had a huge big pretzel, big enough... I mean, the pretzel could have taken over the world and she was sitting beside it with her friend. And I, and I was going for a Coke and I said, hey, how's it going? She says, pretty good. You want some of my pretzel? I said, maybe when I come back. I came in back and sat down beside her. She had rings on her fingers and bells on her toes and she got music wherever she goes. She had stuff sticking out of every part of her, didn't she? She had a ring that was sticking through her nose like you would do your prize bull. She had about three out of each ear. She had one pierced through her eyebrow. And when we began to engage one another in conversation, she had one stuck right through the center of her tongue. And as we began to talk, it was clear that she had an idea in her head about Jesus or about the truth. She was a product of the chaotic, existential world in which the average 17, 18-year-old has grown up in this country and they need to hear
from loved ones such as you the simple invitation, come and see a man. And we will never go to say, come and see a man. Until we do what Jesus bids us do, namely, lift up our eyes and look and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus then goes on to give them this wonderful little bit of instruction there. If your Bible is open, he says to them, you know, even now the reaper draws his wages and even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. It's a, it's a striking little section. It, you'll do well to consider it. And what he's doing is he is juxtapositioning this application with the facts of uh, natural farming and natural ag agriculture. Because in the realm of nature, it is unusual to reap where you haven't sown. You don't get a combine harvester and drive down the street and find a field of barley and say to yourself, oh, I think I'll just harvest this this afternoon. Not unless you want to go to jail or get a punch in the nose from the farmer whose barley field it is. It's not normal. You don't harvest, you, you don't reap uh, where others have sown. It's also possible that in the natural run of events, it would be possible for us to sow and never to know the joy of reaping, Right? I mean, we could sow in the, in the sowing period of the year and then die and we'd never reap. Or we'd get a change of job and we would never reap what we've sown. But look at what Jesus says. In the spiritual realm, while it is unusual in the natural realm to reap where another has sown, in the spiritual realm, it is normal. Indeed, the whole experience of working in the kingdom is the experience of entering in to the sowing work of others. That, you see, is the great wonder of prayer about which we were hearing yesterday. If I may just mix my metaphors for a moment. When you drive down in the Carolinas and you come to these amazing tunnels that go right through the heart of these great mountain ranges, you know for sure that there was a mighty pile of dynamite that was exploded in there or whatever they use in order to, first of all, fashion some kind of entranceway. But before ever the dynamite was laid and the charge was set, there were people who bored their way laboriously into the sides of those mountains. Hard, hard, grinding work to get in and get an opening to get enough of a space to set the charge. That's the task of prayer. Boring, boring, and sometimes it feels boring. Into the side of the mountain so that the preacher may come along and set the charge. And it goes off in a great explosion. And the people say, oh, what a preacher. Oh, what a pastor. Oh, what a person. Dangerous. Dangerous. He's only reaping where others have sown. And some of us, you see, may not spend much of our lives with the privilege of reaping. 
We may not live in a great harvest period. I frequently tell the guys that work with me on the pastoral team, listen, fellas, our job in this church at this point in the kingdom may be no more significant than keeping our foot in the door to keep it open for another who will come behind, who will be knowing a great benefit in reaping a harvest for the kingdom. So if our task is simply to sow, then let us sow faithfully. Let the sowers... Not complain and let the reapers stay humble. For on the day when the harvest is gathered in, I have a sneaking suspicion that it will be the sowers that walk to the front of the line. Unknown in the immediacy, unnamed in the present, but marked in the kingdom. That's why you've got to have a great sense of history, young ones. You've got to realize that you're on a continuum here until Jesus comes. That you don't exist in some existential little four-year bubble in this place. That you are building on the labors of those who've gone before. And you are establishing a platform for others who will come and live in your dorms and take your place. Therefore, so... And if you know the joy of reaping, let us learn to reap with a humble heart. Now, I have one final point. I've done what I always do, and that is never finish uh, the last point because I usually want to preach the next Sunday. But uh, I don't have a next Sunday, so let me just mention the point. The woman's invitation was clear. Come see a man. The master's exhortation was equally clear. Open up your eyes. And the people's affirmation was phenomenally clear. Verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Isn't that what discipleship is about? I mean, isn't that the whole, isn't that the deal? Isn't that the whole cycle right there? Jesus in his mercy reaches into my life and he redeems me. He says, I saved you in order to make you a servant. I want you to open your eyes and look on the fields and I want you to get out there and do what you're supposed to do. If it's in the world of banking, then be an exceptionally good banker marked by integrity. If it's in the world of journalism, then do the same way. If it is in the world of pastoral ministry or if it's in the world of nursing or engineering or science or biology or whatever it might be, I want you to go out there and make disciples of all people so that there will be those on the day when he returns who will say it was on account of this fellow or this girl, their faithfulness, their integrity, their gentle spirit, their honest answers that I heard for myself and I embrace Christ. Rutherford, the great Scottish preacher, labored for the greater part of his ministry in a tiny wee place on the Solway Firth called Anwith. And uh, I think I may have quoted this to you before. I quote it all the time to myself, so I make no apology for quoting it again. And a lady called Cousins wrote a 44-verse poem on the strength of the memoirs of uh, Samuel Rutherford. And out of that 44 stanzas, 
uh, we called about five or six for the hymn which we know uh, with the opening line, the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. There are a ton of other verses to it, all in the same scan, the same meter. And as she read the memoirs of Rutherford and how there was a great passionate longing in his heart for the people to whom he ministered in Anwith, she wrote these words true to his own uh, convictions. And it went like this. O Anwith, by the Solway, to me thou still art dear. In from the edge of heaven I shed for thee a tear. And if one soul from Anwith meets me at God's right hand. My heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. A passion for prayer, a realistic contentment, and a zeal for evangelism. Let us pray together. When I was a small boy in Sunday school in Scotland, there was a wee guy who used to come and speak to us as children. He was a great children's speaker, and he used to play a little treadle organ and teach us choruses. And one of the choruses that he taught us, and that I learned to sing and ask God to make true in my heart, I want to share with you, and you may want to make it along with me, your prayerful response to our looking into these verses this morning. The chorus simply goes, Lord, send me. Here am I, send me. I want to be greatly used of thee. Across the street or across the sea. Here am I, O Lord, send me. Thank you for this time in this opening session of this day, O God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that the people believe because of the words that Jesus spoke, that the confidence of heaven is and remains in the scriptures. Make each of us then men and women of your word, that we may be men and women who proclaim your word, men and women of the Lord, that we might see other men and women Come to the Lord. Bless us now in a moment or two of relaxation before we proceed to the later times. We thank you for one another and for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, everyone is to, I'm supposed to, you're supposed to stand up and then I pray, but I didn't ask you to stand up. So we did a prayer. Okay. Now you stand up and you're dismissed for the.